Hey everyone, welcome back to the What is Money show. I'm sitting down again today with Mr. Max Hillebrand. And I think this is our capstone episode for going into The Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. I'm going to start today uh, with this topic of the origin story of the state. And um, Rothbard cites a quote here by Thomas Paine from Common Sense that I'd like to read to start. And this is on the origin of kings and of the state. Thomas Paine writes, quote, could we take off the dark covering of antiquity and trace them to their first rise? We should find the first of them nothing better than the principal ruffian of some restless gang whose savage manners or preeminence in sub subtlety subtlety not sure about that word obtained him the title of chief among plunderers and who by increasing in power and extending his depredations overawed the quiet and defenseless to purchase their safety by frequent contributions that word subtlety, uh, I think that's used to describe the serpent in the Garden of Eden as well, which is interesting. And then, I mean, the way that I interpret this is that the emergence of the state or kings and the state, I guess, is really just like a mafia, right? These are people or groups charging for defense from the very antagonisms that they themselves threaten or inflict. Yes, and that goes again to the basic definition of what a state is, right? Institutionalized uh, theft on, on large scale uh, with the legal justification to do so in a certain jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the question is, how did we end up with this? Right? And, and then one common argument is that um, there, you know, the, if there were multiple kind of protection agencies, uh, then uh, they would continue to fight amongst each other, basically. Uh, and uh, there would continue to be crisis that, that cannot be settled, right? as, as ultimately physical force is, is what actually allocates resources. Uh, so whoever is, is, is the most forceful, in, in, or th there would be a lot of constant physical force and, and violence, presumably, uh, in between those uh, private security firms. And therefore, uh, a, a natural monopoly, so to say, emerges where the highest level of security is provided if there's one trusted third party that uh, is the only legitimate user of force uh, and uh, being the state. And therefore, all conflicts can be collapsed down to one decision maker again. And we, we have that ultimate judgment, uh, so to speak, um, which makes things easier you know, as, as long as the central party is is honest, so to say, uh, which oftentimes, of course, it's not. Yes, it seems like there is some uh, economization driving it to some extent. Like it'd be, it would be great to have one central party that we could just escalate all of our disputes to and, <clears throat> you know, trust. Uh, you know, ideally they'd be benevolent or incorruptible somehow, and you could just have them resolve your conflicts. That would be a uh, a great 
feat of economization for resolving conflicts, but humans being human, the problem is that arbiter, that institution is always manned by human beings that are corruptible, that are, uh, that can become intoxicated by power, let's say. And that appears to be the problem with statism generally, is that we vest too much power in too few hands. Yes. And what's, what's worth to highlight in, in this approach is, is really where, where it starts, because many people think that the, there is this immaculate Uh, conception to the state, mm -hmm. that there was some peaceful transitioning where everyone acknowledged uh, the state and hence we live inside that. Um, but if you truly look at it, that's not how it is. <laughs> it really isn't. Any type of consent or any definition of consent does not hold up in interactions with the state. Um, so peaceful is not really the word to describe it. Yes. And You know, Rothbard goes on in this chapter, I think we're in chapter 29, um, where he's dismantling this argument from uh, an author named Nozick, who puts forth this origin story of the state that actually I have been, I thought was true. I don't know if I got this indirectly from Nozick because I've never read his work, or if we just um, derived it from the same source, but he's kind of making this argument that there's a, a naturally centralizing monopoly for statism. And um, that I guess is just something that kind of like a necessary evil, I guess you would say historically um, in that you needed a monopolist on violence to preserve private property rights and peace within a territorial area so that people could trade and produce wealth. Um, but Rothbard really goes through Nozick's argument in detail and debunks it point by point. Um, I'll read just one excerpt here to give a kind of give a flavor of Nozick's argument. Uh, Rothbard writes, quote, first, Nozick assumes that each protective agency would require that each of its clients renounce the right of private retaliation against aggression by refusing to protect them against counter retaliation. Perhaps, perhaps not. This would be up to the various protection agencies acting on the market and is certainly not self-evident. It is certainly possible, if not probable, that they would be outcompeted by other agencies that do not restrict their clients in that way, unquote. So the way I interpret this is that um, protective services emerging on the free market those that were more restrictive on the property rights of their customers would in theory, I mean, it makes economic sense that they would be outcompeted by those that were less restrictive. So it doesn't necessarily follow from the argument that we would end up with this natural monopoly of the state, which is absolutely restrictive. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's always possible to deviate and to solve a problem in a unique way. And then, and oftentimes, a certain solution is good enough for some small attack vector, while not good enough for, for larger attack vectors. Uh, and that can all be considered on a case-by-case -case basis in, in a free market society. Yeah, great points. I think, <clears throat> you know, this is... This is a long chapter. He goes through 
I think, 10 points of Nozick's argument and just debunks them. Um, I would sum it up to say that I am now questioning my own original view on the origin story of the state, that it seems much more like something, I guess it's less of a natural monopoly, but it does still seem to be, the pivot point seems to be the economics of, of violence or coercion, which is again, back to kind of the sovereign individual thesis that the, the contours of civilization change as the economics of, of violence or coercion change. Um, so perhaps the, you know, the centralizing tendency into the nation state, I think a lot of that is driven by, um, you know, industrial age weapons, clearly World War One and World War II um, allowed us to project force at a much larger scale. So the the more aggressive force can be projected across space and time, the larger you would expect the organizations that specialize in violence to grow because they can effectively, they can project more force so they can um, generate more revenue and, you know, conquer more lands, et cetera, et cetera, uh, inflict more taxation right under the threat of that force. So I think my big takeaway is to just revisit that origin story a bit and um, see that if, if the economics of violence and coercion change, then maybe the state is not so much of a natural monopoly. We would have more of a free market um, of competing protection agencies if the economics of, uh, let's say, offense and defense were, were a little bit different due to technology. Exactly. And and one additional cool point is that even if it were not right, so even uh, or or in other words, even if the even if the state would be a general great purpose for everyone, then if we would start out in an anarchist free market society, then we would eventually end up being uh, uh, or forming something similar to a state. Right? Mm -hmm. So even if you would proclaim that view that, hey, I mean, there the state is just a natural tendency then there is no real harm in just trying out anarchy, basically, uh, because mm -hmm. you're convinced that it will go back in, into the state tendency. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a topic I'd like to dive into more deeply. I'd like to read more about that. Um, but now I want to shift gears. So I guess the takeaway there is just... The origin story of the state is a little bit unclear to me. Seems like it's just something that has been coercively established. It's definitely not a free market phenomenon. I believe that much is clear. But now I'm questioning how much of a natural monopoly it actually is, uh, which is something I'd like to think about more and, and study more. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually thinking that the state stands on quite shaky grounds uh, and that it's a very obvious scam and that once really you know questioned and and analyzed i'm guessing most people will will come to those conclusions um so or at least people have the capability to come those to those conclusions as long as they are rational uh, and mm. the the question is now just how many people wake up so to say uh, and and realize the that the emperor has no clothes 
And at what point does that lead to an, to an actual change in macro environments? Yeah, so I think with that, let's transition into the final chapter of the book, which is titled Toward a Theory of Strategy for Liberty. And let me tell you, this chapter is lit. <laughs> Rothbard um, just drops fire. I think I highlighted probably half of the chapter. Um, so I'm just going to start working through some of his points here. I'll, I'll open with his opening excerpt. He says, he writes, quote, The elaboration of a systematic theory of liberty has been rare enough, but exposition of a theory of strategy for liberty has been virtually non-existent. Indeed, not only for liberty, strategy toward reaching any sort of desired social goal has been generally held to be catch as catch can, a matter of hit or miss experimentation of trial and error. Yet, if philosophy can set down any theoretical guidelines for a strategy for liberty, it is certainly its responsibility to search for them. But the reader should be warned that we are setting out on an uncharted sea. Unquote. So this, I mean, back to our earlier discussion where I was um, often thinking of liberty and strategic through a strategic strategic lens, whereas much of the earlier book was evaluating it through an ethical lens. Now Rothbard is shifting into the strategy aspect of liberty. And I think this is a lot, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is largely his original contribution, right? Not many other authors have written on this. Not many authors have written about much that is in the book entirely, yes. But mm -hmm. uh, first of all, building all the understanding uh, that is required to then apply the strategy is already a behemoth. Um, but then, yes, uh, Rothbard is very early in, in applying the strategy, and of course, not not the last. Um, I, I mean, even, you know, this goes till very recently of... Uh, or, uh, No, no, yeah, I would, I would say he, he, he was probably in with this property rights focused. He was certainly the first. I mean, there have always been freedom activists and and strategy seekers uh, clearing and and talking, mm -hmm. uh, but with this razor focus and to this extent in such a voluminous treatise, I don't think so. Yes. Yeah, so, and if I had to sum this up, I guess we could say roughly that the ethics represent the should. Whereas the strategy represents the how. Is that approximately correct? Yes, I think that sums it up. And it's also that when we have a clearly defined ethics, then we can filter out bad strategies very effectively. Hmm. Because as soon as a strategy in, in its application would break one of our ethical principles, mm -hmm. it is no longer a suitable strategy. And so the ends do not justify the means. Right? The means have to be accordant to our first principles. Um, and that weaves out a whole bunch of bad ideas. Yeah, that's a, a point he lays out here. Um, so one other excerpt he has here is that, talking about, as Lord Acton wrote, 
quote, classical liberalism wishes for what ought to be irrespective of what is, unquote. So this is really about setting a target for human action, regardless of what reality says, this is kind of the, the ethical aspect of liberalism in its pure sense. We're not talking about, you know, red and blue state uh, statist parties here. We're talking about liberalism in the pure sense, which is low to no government, effectively. Um, pure laissez-faire, free market economics. Um, and then the strategy is how do we move from A to B, from where we are to where we should be. And so I'll read this long excerpt here. Um, Rothbard writes, quote, libertarianism then is a philosophy seeking a policy. But what else can be, I'm sorry, what else can a libertarian philosophy say about strategy, about policy? In the first place, surely, again, in Acton's words, it must say that liberty is the highest political end the overriding goal of libertarian philosophy. Highest political end, of course, does not mean highest end for a man in general. Indeed, every individual has a variety of personal ends and differing hierarchies of importance for these goals on his personal scale of values. Political philosophy is that subset of ethical philosophy, which deals specifically with politics that is, the proper role of violence in human life, and hence the explication of such concepts as crime and property. Indeed, a libertarian world would be one in which every individual would at least, would at last be free to seek and pursue his own ends, to pursue happiness, in the uh, felicitous Jeffersonian phrase. So I think he's going to really just setting the, the direction for this chapter and this, the point of what he's doing here um, is to, you know, what, how do we determine the role of what he's, you know, he's labeling violence here, but again, we can put coercion, compulsion, everything under that, um, that rubric of violence, which is effectively aggression against person or property. What is the proper role of that in the sphere of human action is what he is essentially trying to lay out. And I, th I think the point here is that it needs to be directed towards establishing a world where property is inviolable, effectively. Person and property cannot be violated. It's kind of the ideal. I think, I think he's... I guess that goes even further than his conclusions. Uh, I think he's more talking here about that um, in a question of should should which action should we take the, the action with that which does not break property or that which breaks less property uh, is is beneficial. Um, uh, but I guess if you if you think his reasoning through to the end, then you come to your conclusion that if we have a experience where the the cost of breaking property is way too expensive and the cost of defending property is basically zero uh, then that is th that would be a successful libertarian strategy indeed that, or that would be the outcome 
of a tremendously successful libertarian strategy. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it is that, you know, it's good framing for Bitcoin, actually, that he's <laughs> kind of pointed towards an outcome like Bitcoin without clearly having known nothing about it. I think this book was published in the 70s or 80s. 82, I think. 82, yeah. So um, well before Bitcoin and even really the digital age. Um, but he is... It, it, it's very cypherpunk, right? Yes. It's extremely yes, exactly. cypherpunk. Like that That really might be the, the origin of the cypherpunks. I, I, uh, might actually very well be. Uh, I know that these people were, were reading uh, Austrian economics and especially Rothbard and uh, Konkin and others. Uh, so... You know, this definitely sparked, um, I think, the the internet and and just that computing of or that idea of personal computers uh, yes. and speaking and communicating freely. Uh, that's just that strategy is so genius because it is so pure with with property rights. Mm. Yeah. So what we are reading here really is the philosophical bedrock of the cypherpunks in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is amazing. I love I love that because this points toward that accumulation of knowledge, right? That becomes civilization. Like at first, it's just a theory or a strategy or an idea, but then when digital technology comes on the scene, all of a sudden we're able to concretize these ideas of Rothbard into code, right? Into something that's implementable and useful. Uh, versus just something we're, uh, you know, conversing about or talking about or reading. So, um, yeah, that's that's the idea of cypherpunks write code, and you just put useful tools out there, and people will solve problems with them because that's what people do. And if you yes. found a great solution and you can share it with others at low cost, that's such a powerful psychotechnology that everyone is adopting it. Um, and, you know, arguably the, the exact same logic goes for money. You know, if, yes. if you have money that is unbreakable, that is unstealable, unforgeable and very fully verifiable. Uh, I mean, of course you use it, you know. Yes. Uh, so the, the, the adoption of it is so rapid because it is such a true and useful tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that may be an interesting framing, too, is that the state was formally... To some, and I'm putting, there's a lot under the state, clearly, you know, the court system, common law, judiciary, all these things, but it's kind of a suite of psychotechnologies that were at least, they were useful to at least some extent. Um, but going into the digital age, you're able to get much more useful psychotechnologies, like these principles that Rothbard has written about embedded in code. So that's maybe a good framing for what's happening is we're transitioning off of an older software suite that is less useful really to the user, right? The user is marginalized in the state clearly. Whereas if you're a user of just Bitcoin and similar dissident technologies, if you want to call them that, uh, you get a much, they're much more valuable to the individual user because they're, it enables the user to be resistant to the opinions or political leanings of others. Exactly. And non-negotiable, uh, which is great, right? Mm. Strong encryption just works. Bitcoin, it just works.
Uh, and politics has to align itself to it. Yes. Bingo. Okay. So another excerpt here, Rothbard writes, quote, if liberty should be the highest political end, then what is the grounding for that goal? It should be clear from this work that first and foremost, liberty is a moral principle grounded in the nature of man. In particular, it is a principle of justice, of the abolition of aggressive violence in the affairs of men. Hence, to be grounded and pursued adequately, the libertarian goal must be sought in the spirit of an overriding devotion to justice. But to possess such devotion on what may well be a long and rocky road, the libertarian must be possessed of a passion for justice, an emotion derived from and channeled by his rational insight into what natural justice requires. Justice, not the weak reed of mere utility, must be the motivating force if liberty is to be attained. Powerful stuff there. Um, you know, I, it's just this idea of, I mean, clearly he's spoken a lot to the, the reason of man, the human reason, the power, the objectivity of human reason, how we should be designing our systems toward that rea this reality of self-ownership. But now he's bringing in the emotional element, you know, it's like, this is not going to be easy, guys. You also need to have this deep burning passion for justice, um, which I, you know, I think is a real thing. Like you, when you see change in the world, you see this type of, of passionate element of people really pushing towards something um, that's meaningful, you know, more than just some cold, hard calculus. There, there needs to be this human element of emotion to really uh, move the world. Exactly. And this is so important because he says that this is basically the only important or, or, or the right way of, of, of dealing with this is a passion for justice. Right. So, for example, a, this utilitarian argument that even if the state uh, were to be great uh, in, at solving the, the violence problem, right, and that would be the best, the, the absolute best way that we could deal with, with criminals and with aggression in general, then still the libertarian would not choose to go down that path because the state is so fundamentally rotten that even taking a perceived utilitarian gain for it is no justification uh, to break what is so naturally and intrinsically uh, the human property. Yes. Um, I think he mentions that here at some point where he's saying that you can't, in pursuit of this goal, it's not, it, if you violate the goal itself in pursuit of the goal, it's self-defeating, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, it, and, and, and this is so important when, when thinking about kind of how, how to go about uh, decreasing the influence of the state. Uh, and it, it, here, you know, if you have that thought experiment of, if you would have this magical button that if you press it, the state just goes away tomorrow, poof, mm -hmm. would you press that button? And many people would say, oh, that would be very disruptive and uh, it, it would cause a lot of, uh, you know, destroy, like capital weirdness and whatever, right? Um, but, but ultimately, again, a, a true libertarian answer is yes, I will press that button. Mm -hmm. 
Um, because even temporary craziness uh, is preferable to continuous violation of individual property rights through the state. So pressing that button is absolutely uh, what uh, the, that pure and instant abolition of the state uh, is the only viable strategy for, for libertarians. Yes, and that may sound fanciful to some, but we have to remember again that the state is this ideological superstructure. So it only has power and relevance because people believe it has power and relevance. You know, this is like Yuval Harari calls these imagined orders. And this includes, you know, the state, civil liberties, money, all these things are the stories humans generate and choose to inhabit. So if we could flip this magical switch uh, and trigger all humans to no longer want to inhabit that story, it could actually be done instantaneously, which is pretty amazing. Um, and on that topic of abolition, he analogizes uh, some of this, this future path into a libertarian world through the lens of the abolition of slavery, actually. And he, he makes a, a number of good points here. Um, that relate to the strategy of, of abolishing slavery to the strategy of abolishing statism, uh, which I guess I should make, there's a point here too, that they're not so far separated actually. So this is a really good way to think about it. If your tax rate is 100%, you are a slave. All of the fruits of your labor go to someone else, to the tax authority. If your tax rate is 0%, then you are sovereign, right? You can act as you see fit and you are not exposed to coercion. Anywhere you are on that scale is where you land, right? Like if your tax, if your effective tax rate is 50%, then you're one half slave effectively. So when he goes into this uh, narrative of how slavery was abolished, it's directly relevant to statism. This is not just some loose analogy. I mean, th these things are quantitatively connected through the, the tax rate. So he's quoting here, um, William Lloyd Garrison, who I guess was instrumental in the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of slaves. Rothbard writes, quote, as Garrison carefully distinguished, urge immediate abolition as earnestly as we may, it will, alas, be gradual abolition in the end. We have never said that slavery would be overthrown by a single blow. That it ought to be, we shall always contend. Otherwise, as Garrison trenchantly warned, gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. So if you do not target your actions toward the immediate abolition of slavery, and you say, oh, we'll just extend it another two years here, four years there, and you make exceptions, that that, that, gra that approach of gradualism will become the perpetuity of slavery in practice. And he says the same is true for statism. So we have to target the immediate abolition of the state. Exactly. And the great thing is that it is possible, at least in theory, contrary to ideals like abolishing poverty, because for, for that, we actually need to create resources. And that's not so easy. But in order to abolish the state, we just need to stop stealing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is very much in grasp of humans. 
Uh, and that can very much be be done very quickly, in fact, instantly. Um, though, of course, it, this kind of change has to first and for, foremost come through individuals, and there are a whole bunch of them. Uh, and uh, bad ideas are easily proliferated and, and very difficultly forgotten. Uh, so this is definitely a, a behemoth uh, task that, yes, is difficult, but is very much solvable. And once the steps are taken, once property rights are protected and, and defended consistently, we will see immediate consequences uh, uh, that are prophesized in libertarian reasons. Yes, absolutely. And again, here, this was possible before Bitcoin. If you could somehow convince everyone simultaneously, like, hey, the state is not a good mode of human organization. Let's abandon statism for libertarianism. That's theoretically possible, but very impractical prior to Bitcoin, right? It's just hard to get that many people to move all at once. Um, but with Bitcoin, again, if we had this magical switch to just have everyone move all of their liquid net worth into Bitcoin today, it would be over, right? Game over for the state. What can it do? All of its, cur its currencies would hyperinflate. Taxes would be very difficult to impose. Its revenue, would have, revenue profile would effectively go to zero or near zero. Um, and then we would, we'd reorganize ourselves. So I think this is just, a, and I tweeted this out the other day, actually, at following our conversation and reading this chapter, it's like Bitcoin is the strategy of liberty. It's like, hold your savings in Bitcoin. That is the strategy. Yeah. And although it can't, you know, we don't have this magic button to do it instantly worldwide for everyone. It's happening pretty quick. It's gone from zero to $1.2 trillion in market cap in 13 years. I mean, it's the fastest growing asset in history. And that growth in Bitcoin market cap is a reflection, you know, Bitcoin number go up, state power go down effectively. Um, so I'll read another excerpt here that gets into this idea of, of ends and means. Rothbard writes, quote, hence a strategy for liberty must not include any means which undercut or contradict the end itself as gradualism in theory clearly does. Are we then saying that the end justifies the means? This is a common but totally fallacious charge, often directed toward any group that advocates fundamental or radical social change. For what else but an end could possibly justify any means? The very concept of means implies that this action is merely an instrument toward arriving at an end. If someone is hungry and eats a sandwich to alleviate his hunger, the act of eating a sandwich is merely a means to an end. Its sole justification arises from its use as an end by the consumer. Why else, eat, why else eat the sandwich or further down the line, purchase it or its ingredients? Far from being a sinister doctrine, that the end justifies the means is a simple philosophic truth, implicit in the very relationship of means and ends. So again, as we kind of touched on earlier, but he elaborates uh, 
you know, he articulates it better than we did. It's we cannot have a means which undercuts the very ends it purports to serve, um, which is very important to his strategy for liberty. For now, th- but this had me thinking actually. So I guess maybe an example would help. If the end of libertarianism is inviolable property, right? Inviolable person and property. The point I understand Rothbard making is that you can't violate person or property to achieve that end. Or you maybe not, you can't, maybe he's saying you shouldn't, should not. Um, or he, he proclaims here that the that liberty and, and the property, the individual property right is a higher end than any other end that you could come up with. Right. So your end of uh, overthrowing the the current ruling party uh, because it's some bourgeoisie uh, proletariat, you know, uh, then and in order to get there, you're going to kill someone. Um, Then you think that getting your goal of overthrowing the party is more valuable than the the life of that person. Um, While in the libertarian strategy, or a libertarian critique would be that this is a wrong priority in ends. And not that the means chosen necessarily are wrong, but that the ends itself is where the fault lies. Understood. Um, The thought experiment that I was running to try and take an extreme example is if, say, we're at the end of World War II and if someone, you know, this is very hypothetical, clearly, but just bear with me. If there were some situation in which an individual or a group reached a point where if they killed Hitler, for instance, right? I'm just picking Hitler as like the worst guy in the world. Insert whoever you want there. By killing this individual, we could achieve the libertarian aim of inviolable person and property forever. Right. So that would be violating the person and property of Hitler through violence to achieve this in this aim of inviolable property for everyone forever. Is Rothbard saying that would not be justified? It it depends. Um is this a time traveling scenario where we travel? <laughs> I back? was trying to go back in time because I didn't want to say name anyone alive in modernity because that would just be <laughs> shakier ground. So I was trying to pick an isolated uh, historic example um, just to highlight the moral conundrum, I guess. Well, well, if that person in question has done a crime that justifies uh, um, uh, murder and repu- retribution, then sure. Um, the question is, will that lead to the infinite Garden of Eden uh, and never-ending peace and prosperity? Probably not. Uh, so your, your, your belief in that might be shattered. Um, but uh, if you would travel back in time to a, to a realm where Hitler has not yet killed anyone or ordered the death of anyone, uh, then no, killing him would not be justified, even if you have the conviction that he will go out and be evil in the future. Because if he hasn't, well... He's innocent. Uh, you, you've answered my question, actually. I've, com- I don't know how I forgot, but clearly, <laughs> Hitler had violated enough persons and property that the legal retribution sought against him would be 
morally and legally justified. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So Rothbard's point here would be you cannot violate the person and property of anyone that is rightfully innocent to achieve inviolable personal property. That would be self-defeating. Exactly. So if, if your goal is to have a libertarian uh, society, and in order to reach that goal, you go out and murder people and steal from them, mm-hmm. then obviously you will never reach your, your mm-hmm. end goal. Because on the, pay, on the way there, you destroy what you were seeking. Right. Um, so that logical contradiction doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why gradualism is, is contradictory. Mm-hmm. We're saying, so we want to have this free society, but in the meantime, you know, 60% slav- slavery still all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. And um, that that's exactly what states do, right? They, that's what communism was, right? We're, oh, we're just going to murder a few million people to make it the utopia for everybody else. And to your point, Rothbard's point, that's a fallacy. That's it's self. It's a self-defeating effort. Um, it's a lie. Frankly, you can't create a libertarian world or you you know utopian vision of any flavor, any variety by killing people. It's just it just doesn't work. Um, exactly. And Rothbard puts this perfectly on point in this small excerpt, and I quote: "The transitional demands then." must be framed while A, always holding up the ultimate goal of liberty as the desired end of the transitional process, and B, never taking steps or using means which explicitly or implicitly contradict that goal, liberty. Mm. Yes. Yeah, well said. Um, Yeah, it just seems to me like it's, a, it's an amazing connection between this writing coming to be instantiated in the cypherpunk ethos. Because as good as, you know, like this is all, again, very reasonable, right? But it seems like humans need some technological lever to get that reasonableness into reality. If that makes sense, like it's almost like being reasonable is not enough. You know, Rothbard could write this, we could circulate these ideas, and maybe it would be enough in this ideal world where we could flip a switch and download this Rothbardian software into everyone's mind, but that's not the way the world works. We need some incentive structure or some technological lever to really um, bring it in to make it manifest, frankly. And that's, you know, what Bitcoin is. Yeah, force multipliers, you know, that's mm. that's all about, uh, or or big barriers, uh, you know, things like walls around the castle, mm-hmm. uh, very useful, ancient technology, and we haven't come up with that. Um, but we've certainly refined it, and we've brought it into cyberspace, where a lot of cool things are possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that is, that is just so, so crazily unique, right, that this theory still works in cyberspace, which is crazy by the way, mm-hmm. right? Because meat space and cyberspace is just so, so uniquely different. And that cyberspace is such a rather new thing, at least as we experienced it the last 30 years, that very few ways of thinking about the world still apply and still actually make sense. 
libertarian strategy very much does, right? You buy your your own computer or you build it for that matter. It's an inf infinitely complex production stage, right? Uh, that's that really shows the the beauty of of what a free market can can produce, and and then you buy it and you own it. And you can manipulate that physical device however you seek fit because it's your scarce resource. Mm. And that means that you have the freedom to choose which operating system to run or which software to run on that machine. And that, that, it, that you have a right to actually know the pattern of, or in, in a sense that when you, when you use the software, right, this, you don't have a property right in the software per se. Mm -hmm. That's just a pattern that is represented on this magical computer device. Um, but and with these magical computers sending the pattern and replicating it uh, is just so crazily cheap uh, th that it really is staggering, right? So the, the cypherpunk philosophy is is all based in the property right of running of, of the hardware and in the non-property right in the non-scarce free software uh, that that is replicated a billion times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, another useful framing, right? The the state was, I mean, we kind of said this earlier, but it is its its own pattern, effectively. But there were people in asymmetric positions that could twist that pattern to fit their own ends at the expense of others. Whereas in the world of digital media. Bitcoin, everyone running their own node. It's like, you can't twist the pattern because I'm choosing which pattern to run. So then you get this pure, you know, voluntary shelling point, if you will, of something like Bitcoin. It's like everyone runs Bitcoin core because the properties of Bitcoin core are optimized for users. So there's no, like, how do you, you can't break that network effect asymmetrically. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so cool about Bitcoin, right? That anyone can use it. Anyone can utilize the means to satisfy the ends if they think that the ends are valuable. And if if you believe that they are, then nobody can stop you in using the means to satisfy mm -hmm. the ends. That's the that's the crazy thing where where Bitcoin would not be possible without the cyberspace, right? Without permissionless access to information technology and computational resources. Mm -hmm. uh, without that, Bitcoin is not possible, right? So we, we build on top of the freedom to own a computer and the freedom to run software on top of that. Mm -hmm. And when we have a per permissionless computational network, then we can build this permissionless monetary network on top of it. Yeah, it's mind blowing, honestly. So you see almost this culmination where we have private property right in the hardware or even a bearer asset in the hardware. And then we're just sharing and distributing patterns and self-selecting, like I'm going to run which pattern serves my self-interest the most as is every other market actor. And we're going to zero in on the pattern that serves the, as a result, zero in on the pattern that serves the collective interest. So it's like digital space is, um, it's an amplifier to free market principles. Yeah, a tremendous force multiplier. Yeah. And, uh, it, it gives everyone a voice to be heard by everyone else, potentially, if people want to listen. And that's, but at least it gives everyone a, a opportunity to, to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, well, if, if, but probably even more so, or 
I'm not sure what is more important, but both are incredibly, but just the opportunity to listen and mm-hmm. to read what's on the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, that's just crazy, insane that we can just read, you know, everything on the internet, which is an overload of data that is absolutely surreal, but you could potentially, right? That fact alone changes everything. Yeah, it's it's, it's so transformational. Um, and just to put a button on that topic with Bitcoin, it's like, okay, if you find the ends to be valuable, then you essentially have the means um, to run that pattern or run that software. And it, you know, maybe this isn't provable perhaps, but it seems evident to me that every rational economic actor will choose to be sovereign once they understand it. I'm not saying this happens overnight, but people would choose the sovereignty or the inflation resistance or taxation resistance of something like Bitcoin to all other monies forever. Like that, I, I can't imagine a world where the human reason deviates from that. Yeah, that's very true. And that's because, or I think the reason why we're so convinced about that statement is because it is a logical axiom. Uh, it goes very way back uh, to marginal diminishing uh, values, right? Mm-hmm. Subjective value theory. Um, and here, the basic gist is the more stuff you have, the better. Yeah, uh, because man, you can man use the stuff. more goods to less. Exactly, right? Because you can use that additional unit, that marginal additional unit to solve a problem that you previously did not solve. So if someone takes stuff away from you, we assume in praxeology and Austrian economics that that's a bad thing mm-hmm. and uh, that you can now solve less problems, uh, therefore fulfilling less of your potential. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single-source solution for everything Bitcoin. I will read another excerpt by Rothbard here. It says, quote, The insight that the state is the permanent enemy of mankind, on the other hand, leads to a very different strategic outlook. Namely, that libertarians push for and accept with alacrity any reduction of state power or state activity on any front. Any such reduction at any time is a reduction in crime and aggression and is a reduction of the parasitic malignity with which state power rules over and confiscates social power. So 
things back to this point that really any, again, if, as long as the means does not undercut the ends, which is to say you don't violate any personal property in this pursuit, that the libertarian should celebrate or strive for any reduction in state power. <laughs> so even though earlier he said, you know, grad, you, you shouldn't aim for gradualism, but gradualism is a necessary phenomenon just in the fact that we live in space and time with limited resources um, that any reduction. So you're, you're only going to get gradual reduction. You shouldn't be aiming for gradualism, but gradualism is, is kind of a necessary, I guess you would say. And that, um, Anywhere you can reduce state power or activity on any front should be uh, celebrated and strived for. Exactly. So, so while the, the ultimate goal, of course, is absolute liberty and that if there were this magical button where we could end all liberty, we obviously should use, uh, sorry, where we could end all state aggression, <laughs> then obviously we should press the button. Uh, but of course, that button doesn't exist. But in a different thought example, if a button would exist to uh, reduce uh, a small part of the uh, of the suffering, right, to to reduce the the state activity in some small area, then that is still preferable, right? Uh, even small steps uh, re actually reducing uh, the state theft is a is a benefit, um, and I, I guess that. This is also important here that we're talking about net, uh, net itself, right? So a shift in uh, taxing power, for example, right, to reduce some income tax, but therefore increase inheritance tax, uh, that would be not a, that would not improve our situation, hmm. right? Um, so, but removing the income tax and just leaving it as that, not adding it somewhere else, that would be a libertarian step. Yes. So, yeah. All action must be considered on a holistic basis. It's not enough to reduce one form of tax and concede another form to be increased, something like that. Um, that would, in fact, be that that would be disallowed, really, because that would be actually undercutting the ends, right? You'd be moving the opposite direction. You'd be moving further from libertarianism in that case. So that's a great point. Um, okay. I'll read another excerpt here. <laughs> Sorry, we're reading so many excerpts, but this, I mean, is they're just, all so good. He's dropping so much fire in this chapter. <laughs> Rothbard writes, quote, we conclude this part of the strategy question then by affirming that the victory of total liberty is the highest political end, that the proper groundwork for this goal is a moral passion for justice, that the end should be pursued by the speediest and most efficacious possible means, that the end must always be kept in sight and sought as rapidly as possible, and that the means taken must never contradict the goal, whether by advocating gradualism by employing or advocating any aggression against any liberty, by advocating planned programs, or by failing to seize any opportunity 
to reduce state power or by ever increasing it in any area. So I think that is the argument in a nutshell. It's like, you know, if you desire liberty for yourself and for the world, you have to take this. I hesitate to use this word because it's associated with some bad things in human history, but it's almost an absolutist approach, right? It's an absolution towards liberty. You can't make any exceptions. You can't, you can tolerate gradualism, but you cannot aim for gradualism. Um, and then the, the planned programs piece, I think, is part of the gradualism thing. It's like you can't agree to reduce a little bit of tax over time because then you're just extending out um, that point. Right? You, when, you get to, when you get to now later, they're just going to try to extend it again and add infinitum. So it will never reach its goal. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, it's brilliant. You know, it's like. It, yes and it's it's so it's so concise because it is based on a simple axiom humans act and it's reasoning the reasoning to come to that conclusion is bulletproof <laughs> verifiably yeah. yes yes and then I'll, I'll go ahead and read this as well it says quote the world at least in the long run is governed by ideas and it seems clear that libertarianism is only likely to triumph if the ideas spread to and are adopted by a significantly large number of people. And so education becomes a necessary condition for the victory of liberty. All sorts of education, from the most abstract systematic theories down to the attention-catching devices that will attract the interest of potential converts. Education, indeed, is the characteristic strategic theory of classical liberalism. And this is a, I mean, just a huge resounding point in my mind. And, you know, this is something that I've even pivoted my life on. You know, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. This quote from H.G. Wells, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. Like, it's just, if that doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks, I don't know what will. It's, it's, you know, we are the dominant species in the world because of the logos, right? Our ability to tell and believe stories, construct these ideological superstructures like the state, like money, like liberty, you know, civil liberties, all these things under which we can organize ourselves and coordinate human action at scale in a way that no other animal can. That's what makes us who we are. But if we choose the wrong, if we organize ourselves under the wrong ideas, right, like statism that's premised on coercion, right, that we can violate human self-ownership or human reason, then we can really direct ourselves to catastrophe. It's like we have this superpower, right, to organize ourselves flexibly in large numbers, but if we point ourselves the wrong direction, then we all go off the cliff together, right? And that's what communism was in the 20th century. And I think that's what statism is increasingly, I mean, it's what it is, but it's increasingly evident that it is uh, a mis 
misdirection or misguidance of human action in the 21st century. So, but it is, it's as simple as just changing people's minds. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's actually really difficult, right? Because people have these, this inertia, right? Or they have these, um, these habits and, and, you know, experiences in life that we, we have this tendency to assume that the way things are is the way things should be or will be. But history, history says the opposite. Yes. And I, of course, there's a lot of wisdom in here, right? And this goes back, as Rothbard said, right? This is so deep in the liberal tradition, you know, that you focus on education and on fostering a brighter mind uh, that, that can reason more sharply and come to more solid conclusions that are actually useful uh, for everyday actions. Um, so I, I don't want to underplay that, but it's also very bleak and, and in a sense, hopeless um, analysis, right? Because if liberty truly depends on so many, on other people changing their minds, then it is very difficult for me to actively manifest this, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that I can, um, I can kind of bring about myself, right? And here is maybe where the cypherpunks tr truly are punks, you know, and, <laughs> and to say, well, how about we still try? How about we, we use technology so that we can create a free and private space for human interactions, despite the majority of people having statist ideas. And that is even more so that the statement of cypherpunk's right code, right? It's, it's not about educating people of, about how important a certain software is. Um, it's, it, it's about writing the tool and, and getting it out there. Um, at least for yourself, right? Um, and this is this is somewhat of kind of a shortcut, you know. It, it it gets you to a free place in the here and now. You know, if you use encryption and Bitcoin today, you're at a tremendously free state compared to other individuals on this earth. Um, but but still, it's it's still not the end goal, right? Even if you would have pockets of liberty. That's that's preferable, and that's better than to have uh, no pockets of liberty. Absolutely, um, but ultimately, or I think the reason why this is not good enough is because there's just so much more potential if you would increase the workforce in our division of labor in the free market economy. The the additional problems that could be solved would be tremendous. So even if you are in a small pocket of liberty, uh, you're still. Um, incentivized, so to say, to continue furthering the adoptions, at least of other pockets of liberty, or even to emerge this complete state of liberty, um, at, where at that point, benefits would be even more than they were before. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the last, I think it's the last chapter of Human Action, Mises writes about this as well, that the general argument he makes is that a tool like a, a physical tool will tend to outcompete in the marketplace. Like if a hammer is better at driving nails at a lower price, it'll tend to proliferate and outcompete the other hammers. But he said, there's a subtle difference when it comes to ideologies. 
And that is not necessarily the best ideology that just wins out in the marketplace. Maybe in the long run, as Rothbard's saying, like in the long run, it should. But what is the long run, right? Is it you know, a thousand years? I don't know. But in the short run, it's clear that false ideologies can outcompete and become really big, right? That's, again, what communism was. Uh, and I think now democracy is, is sort of facing the same fate. All these different flavors of statism, fascism uh, did went this path as well. So you can have opinion-shaping individuals support one of these ideologies and make it very popular and implement it uh, rapid in all these, you know, moralistic forms of camouflage and sell it to people. But um, that's really bad, right? It's really bad that these ideologies aren't, because I guess there's so much nuance and sophistication to them, right? They really are the most powerful psychotechnology suites in the world. So there's a powerful incentive for people that understand it to try to control it and then push it on people, sell it to people, whatever. Um, so education is just, it is the, the ultimate weapon, right? It is the ultimate weapon. You can tool or weapon. I, what is the old saying that every tool is a weapon depending on how you hold it? I guess that's true for education as well, because, you know, we can educate people about the principles of libertarianism, where it's like, you know, no coercion, no violence, inviolable property, et cetera which is by definition in their best interest. If we're talking to a person, uh, if we're talking to a person that prefers, you know, abundance to poverty, yet we're competing with ideologues that may be trying to educate, quote unquote, educate, which is really more like propagandize people into other forms of organization. So this whole conflict really takes place in the ideological sphere, right? It's, it's kind of between educators and, and propagandists, maybe is, is the right delineation. It, yes, it, I mean, it, you know, to, to a sense, you, you, you do want to influence other people with your ideas, right? That's, that's the reason why we talk to each other and why we communicate. Um, I, I, I just think that Again, here, property can be a useful differentiator. Right? Do you influence me in a way that uh, it protects my property and increases my prosperity and my, my option space uh, and, and my ability to, to choose and manifest that? Or does it hinder me to do that? Right? Are, are you in the way? Are you, um, or are your ideas leading me to a path where destruction uh, is, is the the only possible outcome. Um, and well, I guess that's, that's where also the scientific method, you know, comes, comes into play, right. To, to actually check the logical rigor of your ideas and mm. to have other people peer review it and for, for other people to evolve the thinking even after, after you, right. That's, that's in, incredibly useful um, to, to to go about with yeah it, i guess the problem arises again it's when people don't understand 
the lies they're being fed, right? Because today we're, we have politicians in the U.S. telling us, oh, we're going to ha- roll out this, I don't even know the numbers, $3 trillion uh, plan, spending plan. But they will bold face on television, tell the population that it costs zero. It's like, we're going to spend $3 trillion. It's going to cost nothing because we're going to tax the rich. And people believe that shit, man. It's like, it, it's like, if you ever seen the movie, the Truman show where the yeah. guy it's Jim Carrey is in this, you know, reality TV bubble. It's like, when I see that, I feel like I'm watching the Truman show. <laughs> That people can logically like process that in their mind, like $3 trillion, the government's going to spend, but it's going to cost nothing. Like it's mind blowing to say the least. And I, I can't help but wonder if, if the, the lies that the state is able to get away with, like they're preying on the ignorance of, they're preying on widespread ignorance, let's say, to get people to believe that bowl of bullshit they're they're selling it's almost like they need to keep people uneducated or miseducated to some extent especially in the sphere of economics property libertarianism philosophy like you don't want a critical thinking society if you're a statist because then your propaganda is not going to get through their filter and when I look at public education in the U.S., like I came up through the public education system, <laughs> um, good in some areas, I guess you could say they teach you mathematics and things like this. But when it comes to looking at socioeconomics and statism in particular, there's no critical thought about that at all. It's just government is the deity, effectively, in, in most of the worldviews proffered in public education. Yeah, and, and now the question is, can we get can, can we get out of that without the mass education campaign, right? Um, because that's a, a difficult thing, you know, this, this mass scale propaganda. And sure, I mean, we're doing great works with the Bitcoin memes and stuff, mm-hmm. right? But it's it's still very difficult. Um, and and here is again why why we still need tools in the here and now. To, to establish pockets of liberty, even though the masses are vehemently against liberty. Um, and, and this is where censorship resistant technologies of cyberspace are so critical. And I really do believe that they are the kicker that that have not been there before, right? That the incredibly cheap cost of, of protecting property uh, and, and therefore and protecting it that much that it becomes uh, unbreakable. Uh, that is such a game changer that now, the the profits, so to say, can move over and protect themselves, you know, in, in, uh, encrypting their money, encrypting their communications, uh, and then from from that strong position, kind of preach by example, uh, you know, living out, acting out that, uh, acting out in that free realm uh, to. To ultimately, you know, show that it's that it's possible and that it's mm-hmm. doable, mm-hmm. and this this is, I think, going to be an example that more people can and will follow, especially when they see the prosperity that is possible on the other side. You know that the grass is a lot greener over there. Mm-hmm. So, 
that's that's why I'm a bit I'm still struggling with this because ultimately I'm I am convinced that we need a mass adoption of liberty ideas. Um, the majority of people will need to upgrade their their psychotechnologies to liberty. Um, but Bitcoin is this great roundabout way of of bootstrapping it. You know, two people running Bitcoin and connecting uh, can can make it work. Uh, and adding more people is is just getting making it better and better. Yeah, I agree. I, I again, my view tends to be that it's tech. It, tech creates our behavior in a lot of ways, right? I'm, I'm just thinking of. I mean, I, I guess it's a bit of a rabbit hole, but I'll just say that incentives in my view are the soil from which our character traits spring you know like we're going to adopt strategies based on the incentive schemas we inhabit and so you to get people to take liberty seriously you need bitcoin i just don't know you know you can you could have this minority of cypherpunks pre bitcoin that would probably go on and be successful and grow to some extent, but to really implement it globally, right. To change people's minds, to encourage education, to your point, to uh, financially or, or give educators the ability to financially support themselves and represent the value of libertarian principles. That's all like from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is what, lets them be independent and wealthy and then educate right through through decentralized digital means um yeah great great conversation there i want to go into this point now um or rothbard is distinguishing between right opportunism and left sectarianism and He's describing that in any social movement, in the progress of any movement dedicated to radical social change, i.e. to transforming social reality toward any toward an ideal system, there is bound to arise two contrasting types or deviations from the proper strategic line. And this is something he actually got from the Marxists, which is the right opportunism and the left sectarianism. So I'll read an excerpt describing that right opportunism in its pursuit of instant gains is willing to abandon the ultimate social goal and to immerse itself in minor and short run gains, sometimes an actual contradiction to the ultimate goal itself. In the libertarian movement, the opportunist is willing to join the state establishment rather than to struggle against it and is willing to deny the ultimate goal on behalf of short-run gains, e.g. to declaim that while everyone knows we must have taxation, the state of the economy requires a 2% tax cut. The left sectarian, on the other hand, since immorality and betrayal of principle in every use of strategic intelligence to pursue transitional demands on the path to liberty even ones that uphold the ultimate goal and do not contradict it. The sectarian discovers moral principle and libertarian principle everywhere, even in purely strategic, tactical, or organizational concerns. 
Indeed, the sectarian is likely to attack as an abandonment of principle any attempt to go beyond mere reiteration of the ideal social goal and to select and analyze more specifically political issues of the most urgent priority. In the Marxist movement, the Socialist Labor Party, which meets every political issue with only a reiteration of the view that socialism and only socialism will solve the problem, is a classical example of ultra-sectarianism at work. Thus, the sectarian libertarian might decry a television speaker or a political candidate who, in the necessity to choose priority issues, stresses repeal of the income tax or abolition of the draft while neglecting the goal of denationalizing lighthouses. I'll read one more little piece here. Sorry, this is a long one. In, I'm sorry, in should, it should be clear that both right opportunism and left sectarianism are equally destructive of the task of achieving the ultimate social goal. For the right opportunist abandons the goal while achieving short-run gains and thereby renders those gains ineffectual. While the left sectarian, in wrapping himself in the mantle of purity, defeats his own ultimate goal by denouncing any necessary strategic steps in its behalf. I could not help but see in this dichotomy between uh, left and right that Rothbard's laying out, the spectrum of shitcoining to Bitcoin maximalism. <laughs> um, where the opportunists would be the shit corner, right? They'll just do whatever they can. They'll abandon moral principle, presumably to accumulate, to advance uh, short run gains, as, as Rothbard's saying. Whereas Bitcoin maximalism seems like more of the approach that wraps itself in the mantle of purity. And that any, you know, even talking about or exploring ideas or asking questions can be seen as impure. And, and I'm not, you know, again, we can't just say Bitcoin maximalism is one cohort, right? There's definitely a toxicity across the spectrum. Uh, so I guess here I would be referring to the most toxic form of Bitcoin maximalism. What do you think about that? What do you think about this idea of opportunism versus, um, I'm sorry, what was the second one? Opportunism versus the sectarianism. I, th I think with the sectarianism, it's, it, it, it goes even like, you know, it goes even further. It's that you, it's that you're so convinced or, or so always focusing on a kind of predefined answer that you negate actual steps that should be taken that needs a more fine grain analysis than just the broad or oh, socialism will will fix this. Um, and you know, to be honest, that's I noticed that also, like on 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 both sides of the argument, especially on libertarianism. You know, it's just saying, "Oh, the market will fix this," uh, is is the easy way out. You know, that that oversimplifies and and that fully embeds in in a very pure form the libertarian ideal, but that obviously is is not enough to actually get the job done. 
right? Uh, 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 the, there are actionable steps missing, which are necessary to, to get there. Um, so this is kind of where we have to become, you know, a bit, a bit cautious, like, you know, uh, the, the, um, uh, sorry, the, the, the left, uh, the left leaning side would basically be, you know, to, um, we, we want to have a Bitcoin adoption, but now we're going to team up with nation states to force people to use Bitcoin, right? The classic El Salvador story. Um, that's here the right opportunism, uh-huh. right? We we sacrifice our principles just to onboard a couple million people earlier than they otherwise would have. Uh-huh. While kind of the left sectarianism is, well, yeah, well, yeah, maybe you know to to be too focused on thinking that Bitcoin is the the only goal and neglecting to search other opportunities um, uh, that that solve our problem better, right? Um, either to get more into detail or to actually even use different technology. Yeah, it's... And I'm wondering here if it it's the singular focus of either the right or the left that blinds that cohort to other possibilities, right? If you're singularly focused on short-term gain, you're obviously going to miss the long-run target, right? You're going to, your your high time preference, right? You're sacrificing the, the end for immediate, for I guess the ultimate end for more immediate ends effectively. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, the sectarian end of the spectrum, you if you just conclude, right, like this is the only thing that matters forever, don't ask me any questions about it. It's pure, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond reproach or beyond interrogation or questioning, then you, you adopt a certain kind of blindness as well, right? You just, you've already... There's a saying that a free mind never concludes. So if you just completely concluded and you're dogmatic about one approach, then you're going to be necessarily blind to others. So, yeah. and it's 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 a mix of both. And there's another great excerpt here, uh, and a quote that the Marxists have correctly perceived that their two sets of conditions are necessary for the victory of any program of radical social change what they call the objective and the subjective conditions. The subjective conditions are the existence of self-conscious movement dedicated to the triumph of the particular social ideal. Conditions uh, which we have been discussing above. So so the the subjective is, um, you know, basically that there is, that we have something something good to work towards, uh, basically. And then the objective conditions are the objective fact of a crisis situation in the existing system, a crisis dark enough to be generally perceived and to be perceived as the fault of the system itself. And that is required too. You, you need to not just be running towards something, but also running away from something. Mm. Uh, and when both of these things come together, that's where you're at razor focus. And that's where radical change happens. And 
th that's also so pressing for Bitcoin, right? Because it was established, you know, with the chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks, you know, at the heart of the financial crisis were a, a crisis situation in the existing system, just as Rothbard lays it out, you know, it's, it's highlighted as the thing that we're running away from, you know, the pre-Genesis era. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then we work towards something uh, by actually building a, a free monetary network uh, that, that actually solves those issues and is a much more beautiful solution itself. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Um, so the, the Rothbard is advocating for the, the middle way here, right? There's got to be, you need both of these conditions. You don't want to be a radical opportunist or a radical sectarianist. Um, and he goes on to say this, he says, indeed, if we examine the revolutions in the modern world, we'll find that every single one of them, A, was utilized by an existing cadre of seemingly prophetic ideologists of the alternative system, and B, was precipitated by a breakdown of the system itself. So, you know, what I'm reminded of here, because he's distinguishing between subjective objective conditions, you need both. And that's what, as you said, something to run, run away from and something to run towards. You're running away from an objective breakdown of the system towards uh, a more highly valued subjective system or aim. Um, you know, Verveke has this term that transcends subject object that he calls transjective. And it's interesting here because he, he said he refers to adaptation actually as transjective, right? What is adaptation? It's not, you can't say it's objective in the organism. You can't say it's just subjective in the environment. I mean, there's some reciprocity between the two, right? There's objective. I may have got that backwards. There are objective environmental conditions. There are subjective interpretations of those conditions by the organism that, that lead to action or behavior. And as a result of the dance or the confluence between those two, you get at Darwinian adaptation and natural selection. And that's similar to what we're describing here, right? There's an objective breakdown in the system. There's a, a more highly valued subjective end or alternative system that we're running towards. That's what drives this process of adaptation. So I guess, I guess the general message here is this caution of extremism, perhaps that the, the middle way is how we navigate Oh, well, that's, I mean, you know, you have to be extreme on your principles, right? And, and not compromising yep. on them. But but then in that left and right dichotomy, uh, yes, I think it's it's the balance point, um, you know, that, that both sides need to be um, considered and utilized, right? You, you cannot fall only on, on one side or the other. Uh, that will lead to collapse, right? And that's what makes it difficult and a very dynamic process. Yeah, because the earlier point was to be an absolutist on libertarianism, right, is, is necessary to bring it into existence. So, yeah, very complicated, fascinating at the same time. Um, and it, you know, I'm doing this other series on this book, Lilo, that I've mentioned before that actually 
subject object is a metaphysics that Aristotle gave us basically. So it's like, it is, it is itself a psychotechnology. It's a very deeply embedded one. Like it's almost impossible to not think in subject object, but there are these areas like adaptivity, um, like the price, by the way, market price is transjective, right? It's where subjective demand crosses objective supply and you get this market price. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in general, the concept of fitness is kind of transjective. And that's what that's what's going on here, right? Is we're trying to establish better fitness, right? Better fitness of individual to the world, individual to system, system to the world, etc. Yes. Okay. So time for another long excerpt. This one. Well, I'm just going to read it first. Then we'll talk about the points. Rothbard writes quote, but in the first place, why should libertarians be optimistic even in the long run? After all, the annals of recorded history are a chronicle in one civilization after another of centuries of varying forms of despotism, stagnation, and totalitarianism. May it not be possible that the great post-17th century thrust toward liberty was only a mighty flash in the pan to be replaced by sinking back into a gray and permanent despotism. But such superficially plausible despair overlooks a crucial point. The new and irreversible conditions introduced by the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and 19th centuries, a revolution itself a consequence of the classical liberal political revolutions. For agricultural countries in a pre-industrial era can indeed peg along indefinitely on a subsistence level. Despotic kings, nobles, and states can tax the peasantry above subsistence level and live elegantly off the surplus while the peasants continue to toil for centuries at the bare minimum. Such a system is profoundly immoral and exploitative, but it works in the sense of being able to continue indefinitely, provided that the state does not get too greedy and actually kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. But fortunately for the cause of liberty, economic science has shown that a modern industrial economy cannot survive indefinitely under such draconian conditions. A modern industrial economy requires a vast network of free market exchanges and a division of labor, a network that can only flourish under freedom. Given the commitment of the mass of men to an industrial economy and the modern standard of living that requires such industry, then the triumph of a free market economy and an end to statism becomes inevitable in the long run. Wow. Um, (laughs) Well, well written. Uh, Again, highlighting this progression where we had the what he described as a revolution in the classical liberal political ideology that led to the implementation of these ideas in the Industrial Revolution that then created this kind of virtuous cycle of more wealth, more freedom. Um, on which we're kind of scaffolding higher towards a higher form of civilization. And we are living through that, right? This wasn't that long ago. Talking about the 18th and 19th centuries, we figured this out. You know, prior to that, 
if you've ever seen the the global GDP chart for like the the past two thousand years, it's basically flat forever until the seventeenth, maybe it's the eighteenth century. It just absolutely goes explodes. It goes parabolic in the industrial age. Um, it seems like, I mean, this is a cause for great optimism. Actually, it's like viewed over the longest course of history, we're we're moving well in the in the right direction towards libertarianism, but over shorter time spans, as we're seeing today, we're clearly deviating the opposite direction pretty substantially. Yes, but I'm I'm not so sure if if I understand Rothbard's reasoning here, uh, because he's basically saying that after we've had kind of this this one spark of liberty thinking in the 1700s, out of that emerged the Industrial Revolution, and that's that has proven to be a that has proven to alleviate a lot of ends, you know, to solve a lot of problems for everyday people. And I, I guess he's argumenting that people now got used to having those problems solved, and the only way to solve those problems is in a free market system. Therefore, people will want to have a free market system in order to get those ends that they cannot otherwise get. Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, the problem is that once you forget uh, the, once you forget what level of prosperity can actually be achieved, or even if you cannot even imagine it, right, the seen and the unseen and the unrealized. So if, if you cannot imagine a superior state and if you kind of got used to how shitty it is, then that lack, you know, that's that's kind of lacking. And, and we we saw that in, in people in, in communist times, you know, they they didn't really know that there was that much greater stuff outside. And then there is no real desire for liberty because you don't know that there is a higher possible end that could be strived for. So I I don't know um, if if that's actually you know conclusive argument for liberty will be there in the long run. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's forward looking statement. Um, the way I interpret it is that I heard it put like this once that it's hard to take things away from people once they're used to having them. Um, and th- this was that that particular phrase was in regard to government intervention, right? Like someone had talked about uh, government censoring the internet worldwide, and it seems like that would be a pretty pretty hard act to accomplish, at least in the Western world, because people are just so integrated with the internet, right? Work is integrated with the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So, um. Maybe Rothbard's point here is that, you know, people have just become accustomed to a certain standard of living. And if that, if the state intervention um, becomes so excessive that it actually started, starts to retrogress that standard of living that people will push back. Um, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure either, but I, I think that the other thing that's really key here 
I got this from Peterson who got it from Piaget. He talks about this difference between equilibriated and disequilibriated structures, which I'm sure you've probably heard if you listen to Peterson's work. And he just says that um, the equilibriated structure, which is something that's voluntarily adopted, it will outcompete the disequilibriated structure in the long run because the dis equilibrated structure has to impose its rules on participants. So there's, it's like fiat currency, right? There no, no rational market actor voluntarily uses fiat or it would not emerge on a free market. Let's say you can get into the nuance of voluntary versus involuntary. Um, so there's a cost to enforcing those rules and protecting the turf on which fiat currency exists. So it's a disequilibrated structure. There's an expense to imposing it, frankly. Whereas something more like Bitcoin is an equilibrated structure in that it's voluntary, right? You don't have to enforce, impose the rules of Bitcoin on people. People voluntarily adopt them. Miners voluntarily uh, participate in the market to enforce them. So it, it has this uh, more sustainable economic dynamic, I guess, that supports it. So. In the long run, again, not knowing exactly what that is, we would expect freedom to outcompete despotism. Um, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but that was just kind of my interpretation on it. I think you're you're pretty spot on, and you know, thinking about this as well, like what, what Rothbard is saying here is basically that back at a lower capital accumulation stage, um, socialism still was not as harmful um, or not perceived as harmful because the, the, the difference was, was not that, that major. But once we got into the industrial kind of age and we saw the amount of capital that we can accumulate, at, at that point, you kind of cannot really turn back. And, you know, arguably the same is currently happening in Bitcoin, right? I mean, I've heard from so many people that once you, once you get Bitcoin, you can't unget it, right? It's, it's like you, you're just continuously obsessed with it. And Bitcoin only works in a free society, right? It's, um, and therefore you will continue to strive towards building that free society. And that's a... That's at least a, a very strong personal motivation for, for me and, and others. And arguably, that is just another kind of manifestation that things are indeed moving towards that direction. Because with every new liberation technology that we see, we, we cannot unsee it. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Is um, <laughs> Bitcoin's kind of a one-way street, right? Like. You go into the rabbit hole, you don't come. I don't know anyone that's come out of it. Uh, I guess you could say there's been, a, you know, the, the Roger Vares or whoever of the world that get into Bitcoin and then try to make their own Bitcoin or what or whatever. But um, every, every Bitcoiner that I interact with just goes one direction down the rabbit hole. So that's that's an interesting point. It, and it again, speaks to human nature being a core component of this technology because it's, it's more than just a technology, right? It's, a, it's also a psychotechnology or it's one of these 
you know, ideological superstructures in a way, like that's what money is, but Bitcoin is just the most pure form of money or the most fair form of money there has ever been, which makes it really important in the context of everything we're talking about. Okay. I'm going to read another excerpt here. Rothbard writes, quote, for half a century, status intervention could wreak its depredations and not cause clear and evident crises and dislocations because the quasi laissez-faire industrialization of the 19th century had created a vast cushion against such depredations. The government could impose taxes or inflation upon the system and not reap evidently bad effects. But now statism has advanced so far and been in power so long that the cushion or fat has been exhausted. As economist Ludwig von Mises pointed out, the the reserve fund created by laissez-faire has now been exhausted. Whatever the government does now leads to an instantaneous negative feedback that is evident to the formerly indifferent and even to many of the most ardent apologists for statism. So this sparked a thought for me is that, did we extend the runway of statism a bit early on in the digital age? Because clearly these tools and technologies, and I guess you could could add globalization here too, that both of these uh, changes radically increased the global division of labor. So it gave statism maybe a little bit more of this capital cushion or income cushion to draw down against. What do you, do you think that's accurate? Because again, this book's written in the 80s. Clearly, statism's still alive and well 40 years later. So Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because you know ultimately the state is a parasite and it can only consume while reducing someone else uh, or it can only survive while reducing someone else or consuming someone else and you know therefore you either drain the capital stock or you drain the capital flow into the stock mm-hmm. um, and if you drain more than the flow then you're ev- eventually going to run out and you're going to consume it all um now, you know, arguably the internet has kind of increased the flow of capital mm-hmm. and on new inflow of capital that we could accumulate uh, and create. Arguably that has been, ha- had a substantial impact uh, on, and therefore, you know, the parasite had kind of a, a rejuvenated host mm-hmm. who, who we could longer leech from. Now, arguably, I mean, if, if, if that were correct, then that would be very sad for Bitcoin because we're all getting filthy rich with Bitcoin. And that would mean that a lot of people get again stolen from. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about um, that, you know, it's for all of the benefits that we highlight of digital tools and technologies that there might be kind of this weird um, negative aspect early on, you know, just by giving statism um uh, like you said a rejuvenated host i think is a good way to put it okay we're making a lot of progress here i'm going to read another excerpt rothwood writes quote furthermore all the various forms of statism have now been tried and have 
failed. At the turn of the 20th century, businessmen, politicians, and intellectuals throughout the Western world began to turn to a new system of mixed economy, of state rule, to replace the relative laissez-faire of the previous century. Such new and seemingly exciting panaceas as socialism, the corporate state, the welfare warfare state, etc., have all been tried and have manifestly failed. The call for socialism or state planning is now a call for an old, tired, and failed system. What is there left to try but freedom? I love this paragraph. Um, and it, it makes a ton of sense, but I am equally disenchanted by the calls for socialism I see in the modern age. I, again, I I don't know if we diluted our intellectual stock in the past 50 years on fiat currency or or what, but we, you know, at the university age demographic, there are really loud calls for socialism, communism, to the point that, you know, certain young people call each other comrade. Um, what, like, how did we regress so much? Is this just, so maybe it's a combination of these two things we just described, the rejuvenated host and global fiat currency, where the parasite was basically able to escalate its its depredations on the host. Is that what extended the runway for statism and got us back into these cries for communism that we see today? Yes, I think so. And and in addition to that, it's that the, the fiat male investment was especially done into fiat academies and, and universities. Mm. And that Prussian outcome-based education system is is literally designed to create, uh, well, either industrial slaves or military war machine uh, mm -hmm. soldiers. Um, so it's definitely not a system to foster individual thinking and a love of liberty. Um, so, and yes, you know, a century of all that malinvestment and overconsumption and all that propaganda being spread has serious consequences that we will need to deal with um, and it's not a, a quick or easy way out of this um, or well to, to an extent i think that bitcoin is the easiest way out of it mm. yeah agreed um so we're basically almost done i've only got one excerpt left to read here um this one is interesting. Uh, so I'll, I'll read it first. Arthur writes, quote, perhaps the best sign of all, the most favorable indication of the breakdown of the mystique of the state was the Watergate exposures of 1973 and 1974. For Watergate instigated a radical shift in the attitude of everyone, regardless of their explicit ideology toward government itself. Watergate indeed awakened the public to the invasions of personal liberty by government. More important, by bringing about the impeachment of the president, it permanently desanctified an office that had almost been considered sovereign by the American public. But most importantly, government itself has been to a large extent desanctified. No one trusts any politician or government official anymore. All government is viewed with abiding hostility and distrust. 
thus returning to that healthy distrust of government that marked the American public and the American revolutionaries of the 18th century. In the wake of Watergate, no one would dare today intone that we are the government, and therefore that anything elected officials may do is legitimate and proper. For the success of liberty, the most vital condition is the desanctification, the delegitimation of government in the eyes of the public, and that Watergate has managed to accomplish. So, again, agreed. Like I wasn't around for that, but you know we we've heard about it, and um, but it seems like Rothbard failed to conceive of maybe it was the going off the gold standard again in combination with globalization and digital age that rejuvenated the host and then allowed the state to aggress against property more easily or at, at lower cost or greater scale. Um, but the, 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 on the positive note, it seems like the, the same aspects he's highlighting about Watergate in that it created the desanctification of government and the American presidency in the eyes of the American public and shifted the attitude back towards this distrust of government that um, characterized the American revolutionaries, for instance. It seems like that is happening a lot again today. <laughs> Post-COVID, you know, COVID's almost like a neo-Watergate. I don't know. I mean, at least this might be uh, confirmation bias or whatever, any number of biases, because clearly I'm very far on the libertarian side of the spectrum. I don't know anyone that trusts government. I don't know anyone that actually believes that government operates in your best interest. Um, that's got to be positive in the long run because it's more aligned with truth, right? It's aligned with all the truths that, that Rothbard highlights here about statism. Yeah, that's, that's certainly it. But, you know, I, I still heard a bunch of people calling for lockdowns and mask mandates or, you know, cheering on uh, Bitcoin legal tender laws. You know, that's, those are all, you know, just showcases that we're still far from having convinced everyone that freedom is actually that. And, and not just to, you know, do lip service to liberty, but to actually live by it and mm. die for it. Mm. Uh, I, I think that we're still quite far off. Um, and, you know, actually, in, in hindsight, after our reread through this, uh, like, I think Rothbard is, he, he sounds a bit kind of too optimistic or maybe I've, if the only strategy to liberty were truly to educate the people and to spread the ideas of liberty, if, if that were truly it, then I would be pretty hopeless, I think, at this point. Mm. Um, I, I don't think that it's, that's enough. Maybe in the very long term, maybe not. Um, but... That's, I think, where, as Rothbard later also puts at the end of the book, right, that we will see so many new and young researchers and scholars evolving these libertarian ideals. And mm -hmm. that certainly did happen after Rothbard's death. I mean, you know, just for reference, Rothbard has not, not one single time used a computer. 
you know, he, he was always a typewriter kind of guy. Wow. Um, and he is completely out of that, well, realm of cyberspace, you know, is truly one of those last uh, of, of that generation. And he is, he, he could be even more optimistic than he lays out here. And with understanding what, what you, Robert, lay out so beautifully is that we just make property in, uh, unbreakable. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just that invaluable uh, property right uh, through strong encryption and all these beautiful systems. Uh, that is the game changer. You know, that is the, the kicker in the libertarian strategy that I think was missing. Um, and... But we needed to have that long era before where it really was more about you know, thinking about the fundamental principles of liberty to then apply them consistently, not just in meat space, but also in cyberspace. Uh, but when, when having that focus on property rights and individual prosperity, then we can achieve not just wonderful things in meat space, um, which we've arguably seen uh, if you zoom out, mm-hmm. But even more so in cyberspace, right? Free software is just eating the world because it is aligned to true principles. And with cypherpunks writing that code and actually creating the technologies that will manifest irrefutably the inalienable sovereignty of individuals, that is such an infinitely more hopeful outlook on the prospect of liberty. And that's that's just wonderful to see. You know, even Rothbard was was so optimistic here. But there's so much more that we can treasure and be thankful for that we have in our arsenal uh, to to towards a, a state of liberty. Yeah, well said. Um, I agree. If absent a Bitcoin, you know, there's just so much individual inertia or or maybe we could just say the incentives just weren't there right to get people to act and maybe in the long run it would have happened but again it's kind of like you need the hard times to incentivize people to change and uh you know adopt new systems right that's that's how america was born frankly right there were really excessive taxation um excessive statism Right, gave birth to the American Revolution. So, which in turn gave birth to the internet, you know, yes, computer technology. Yeah. So, through the lens of a strategy towards liberty, Bitcoin is like the libertarian ace in the hole, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, and and, you know, it, it goes so far because this is not just a technology so that people can manifest the expressions of their priorities and preferences adequately, right? It's even more so that it decreases the ability of state agents to do that, mm-hmm. right? Because it is a sound money, it it actively reduces the amount of capital of the state, like tangibly. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the even more crazy thing is that the, the amount of capital that is being reduced from the state hands depends solely by the individual action of people getting paid in Bitcoin. That's that's the button that you need to push to go for instant abolition of government is to just get paid in Bitcoin. And that gets you so far towards that complete uh, abolition of, of, of the state, 
uh, it's incredible. And it's thanks to the use of information technology, the cost of pressing that button has been reduced to basically nothing. Yeah. And it will continue to get reduced and it will continue to get more and more flashy and shiny with nice features so that more and more people will continue to press that button. Yeah. It is such a beautiful thing. Um, the empowering, you know, Bitcoin specifically, but also many other digital tools and technologies, as we said, they're empowering this a priori reality of individual self-ownership. It's like we, we're less dependent on these large analog age institutions that whose rules may or may not favor our interests or we may or may not be uh, exposing ourselves to rent seeking, right? We're increasingly able to empower and energize our own the reality of our own individual self-ownership in radically new ways with more options, more wealth, you know, um, more productivity, more economization, all the things. It's just so mind-blowing where it really goes. And to your point with Bitcoin specifically is we have a tool that has successfully aligned the killer app of getting rich with the abolition of statism. <laughs> so it's like, yes. you want, it's incredible. It's like, it is the ultimate, the ultimate weapon for individual liberty, right? It's destroying the thing that preys on individual liberty and taking the energy from that and giving it energizing individual liberty. It's just, it's mind blowing, honestly. Yeah, it, it, it truly is, you know, and uh, this this just shows of, of how much we have further refined the argument in just, what, 40 years or something? Mm. And all that's, uh, it, it, that's, that's really insane. Um, because again, like Rothbard is, is super bullish without any of these technologies of, of cyberspace. Uh, and uh, it's, it's great that he had that level of foresight, you know, even, even before this. But now that we have the benefit of hindsight and seeing what kind of technology is available at us and how that changes the picture, um, you know, it just strengthens his argument even more. You know, if, if we continue to apply those principles and that reasoning, we can just see where the outcome will take us. And it's a absolutely beautiful place. So to become an extreme radical and to go for for extreme liberty and and the immediate abolition of government is all of a sudden no longer that of a crazy or scary notion. It it really is stepping up to the plate and and fulfilling your potential. Well said, Max. I have to thank you because we have done quite the long series here. Um, I think these ideas are extremely important. They need to be more widely disseminated if we are to move into this um, better future that, that Rothbard has largely helped us um, describe. And, you know, thank you for being a living philosopher. You know, I think Bitcoin <laughs> and the world needs people that think deeply about these topics and you know, I have to thank you personally for pulling me into this because I've read I'd read a little bit of Rothbard before, but not, you know, you've helped guide me to the right pieces here. And I think this book is the book to read <laughs> from Rothbard based on my limited exposure so far. 
Um, so thank you for that. Well, yeah, Wait. thank you very much, Robert. Uh, this really was a pleasure. I, I, I love that book. I remember so vehemently reading it for the first time. Um, and it's it's really been a pleasure to go through it with you now. Uh, and that it, it gave me really a new appreciation of not just what's in the book, but what's not in the book. Mm. You know, that, that what we've kind of developed here that, uh, you know, to just make property unbreakable. It's mm. it's such a crucial point that really few people have have articulated in that way and in, in this old tradition of, of praxeology. But we, we see it embodied and we see it working and mm-hmm. we see how incredibly successful it is. That's, it, it, it just gives me this another whole great appreciation of, of what we're doing and how, you know, forward thinking and pioneering this really is. Like this is a insane experiment. Uh, and that it has not yet blown up is a miracle. <laughs> Seriously, mm. it's it, it's absolutely wondersome. Um, but with, you know, and then ultimately, though, you know, even though that we figured out the, all of these technologies, still upgrading the psychotechnologies of every individual is a requirement, you know, to hunk back to the probably very first episode of the series. Um, as the morality of a civilization increases, its freedom increases. And as the, the morality of a civilization declines, its freedoms decline. Um, and education and especially a f- uh, spiritual or f- philosophical education or, or ethical education specifically is, is so crucial and it has been neglected in, in recent times. So it's it's again up to individuals to use these fabulous technologies of cyberspace to to re-educate and, and to pull up your peers to a higher state of, of understanding and grasping uh, with a certain subject uh, that especially so crucial as politics and economics and, and money that can be so influential to your everyday life. And if, if you don't understand these things, you're going to get robbed blind very quickly. Yes. And it's going to be a painful process. But with education, you can arm yourself to understand the reality of things and to prevent yourself from making stupid mistakes uh, that are easily preventable. Uh, so, so going through especially this book uh, and sharing or kind of struggling and, and wrestling with that content mm-hmm. uh, was was hopefully interesting for for some and uh, hopefully well useful for for most yeah i i do hope people find it valuable and you know to your point when it comes to money and property if you don't understand the game that is being played then you're probably being played right so Hopefully this helps wake people up to that reality. Could you please tell my audience where they could find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? As towards liberty.com. Uh, it's a small little website with, uh, with my contact detail. Um, and uh, on, on Twitter at Hillebrand Max, uh, GitHub Max Hillebrand, basically under my name. Uh, lots, uh, lots of places out there. Um, and I guess just on YouTube, there have been... I've, I've created a couple different playlists with numerous kind of educational videos uh, about talking both about 
the economics as well as the technology and then the applied kind of philosophy. Um, so I'm always eager for conversations. Uh, so so let's keep them coming. Uh, and yeah, again, Robert, thank you for for inviting me for for that very very long conversation. But it, it was a blast recording this throughout these months, uh, and even more exciting to to actually listen it being produced and published out there and and all the feedback. Uh, so it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah. And keep keep up the great work. Pleasure's all mine. I had a blast as well. We'll link to all of your stuff in the show notes. And Max, thank you again. Bye-bye.